Our reading today is from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved us, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If, I, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Amen. And you can be seated. Well, in our journey together through the Gospel of John uh, that we've been on for some time now, we come to a moment where the scene uh, gets much more intimate than it has been thus far in Jesus' life. So far, in the Gospel of John, his teaching had been in the, uh, out there with the crowds, a mixture of people who believed in him and those who didn't, his followers and those who were just curious. But now, as his story nears its climax, as he enters into Jerusalem, as he shares his last meal with his disciples, we're now in the last days, uh, the last moments of Jesus' life. And the way that he spends those last hours... Ironically, it's only a few hours, but it, it contains almost half of the Gospel of John is spent in this last part. And the scene is one of nearness and intimacy as he takes his disciples and he begins to pour into them, preparing them for their life in the world after he leaves. The themes that come up over and over in these sections from John 13 through John 17 are Jesus' love for his disciples, preparing them for their mission out into the world. He's preparing his disciples for their mission in the world. And in God's great grace, this comes at a wonderful time for our church. Some of you were able to join us uh, last weekend as we had a weekend spent on talking about our church's mission and vision. 
Randy and Joan Neighbors came and spent time with us talking about uh, their ministry in inner city Chattanooga, all the wonderful things they had seen over 40 years of leading a cross-cultural church that was fruitful in evangelism and mercy to the poor and really transforming a neighborhood. And we started to get excited, didn't we, about our mission, our vision for what God might do with this body. And yet it's so important, before we rush out into the world uh, confident, in ourselves and our own strength to accomplish the mission, that Jesus takes us aside like he did his first disciples, and he spends time preparing us, teaching us what it's going to take. And interestingly, the, the first thing Jesus does in preparing his disciples for his mission in the world is an act of love and service, pouring his love, his life into them. And so I hope we can pay good attention uh, we always do. The all are a wonderful church to preach to. Everybody always listens. But let's pay attention to these moments in the upper room where Jesus prepares us, his people, for the call that he has on our lives. This scene is, is startlingly intimate. He gathers with his disciples uh, around his last supper, his last meal with them. And they would have been uh, reclined around a table some of you have seen the Leonardo da Vinci painting, The Last Supper. It's maybe one of the most famous paintings uh, in the world, where all the disciples are seated around Jesus, and it looks like they're kind of all behind one long table, like a really frightening panel interview. Well, Leonardo got a lot right in his life, but he got this wrong. That is not the way The Last Supper happened. It would have happened around a low table, all of them reclining near to one another, their feet out behind them, as they clustered around to share this meal. And it would have been customary at a meal like this for a servant prior to the meal to wash the feet of those who'd gathered for the meal. This, this wasn't the role of the host in his hospitality. It was well beneath his dignity. It wasn't even the role of an Israelite service, a servant. This role was usually, uh, usually left for a non-Israelite Gentile slave. It was viewed as a humiliating position to kneel and to take the dirty, crusty feet of people who lived uh, in a world without much in the way of transportation, who walked nearly everywhere they went, to take their dirty, nasty feet and to wash them, to dry them, to clean them. This was the lowest place for someone to take. And yet here Jesus, Jesus who at the very outset of our passage says, knew who he was and knew where he had come from and where he was going. Right? This is Jesus who, uh, from eternity past, had been with the Father, who had come down into history and who was going to return to the right hand of God, strips himself down uh, essentially to his underwear, kneels down and begins to wash his disciples' feet against uh, their better judgment, against Peter's protest. He takes this vulnerable position. And then he asks, do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand uh, what I've done for you? And I suggest that they didn't, uh, that we uh, very often don't. Right, you may have heard this passage. Uh, it's the Maundy Thursday passage. It's one that we often preach in Holy Week. You may have heard it uh, preached, and I've even understood it as primarily an example passage. That it's primarily, and Jesus even says that, it, that it's an example, but we've, we've understood it primarily as, look, here's Jesus loving, serving. So we ought to then love and serve like Jesus. We ought to take the lower place. We ought to take the servant's place. 
And certainly that's an application of the main point. But this is about more than just Jesus setting an example for us to follow. If it had been just Jesus setting an example for us to follow, Peter wouldn't have struggled with it like he did. Peter wouldn't have struggled if it had just been like, oh, okay, Jesus is teaching us a nice object lesson about how we're supposed to go out and serve. Right? But we need more than just an example of how we ought to love and how we ought to serve. Right? If this is simply do like Jesus did, love like Jesus did, then history is full of great examples, right? Gandhi would have been enough. Right? To say, oh, just go and be forgiving, be nice, be loving. But if the, if the point, if the thrust is just love like Jesus loves, it leaves us without hope. Right? Love like Jesus loved. Well, if that's the point, then, then it's a miserable failure. Right? His, his own disciples, the ones who've had their feet washed here, love like Jesus loved, one of them betrays him, one of them denies him. And all 12 of them with their freshly washed feet walk away from Jesus, walk away from one another in their hour of need, in his hour of trial. No, 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 we, have, we need something far more uh, than an example of how we ought to love, than a model to follow. In this passage, this act of Jesus gets right to the core of our deepest need, which is not for, for good advice or an example to follow, but that our deepest need is to learn to let God love us, to receive the love and service that God extends to us in Jesus. Look at Peter's protest of Jesus' action here. Jesus gets down uh, to wash Peter. And Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Later on, he, he resists even further and he says, you shall never wash my feet. Never, ever will you wash my feet. Why does it strike Peter as so offensive that Jesus would wash his feet. You know, I think at first glance, it looks like humility on Peter's part, right? He's saying, no, no, Jesus, you're far too great and I'm far too low. You're my master. I should be the one washing your feet. You're, you're never gonna wash my feet. It looks like humility. But I think it's a whole lot more insidious than that. I think it's pride that keeps Peter from letting Jesus wash his feet. You know, we all struggle on some layer, level in our pride with accepting the love of God on God's own terms, right? We all want to be loved, right? We all, we all like the idea of a God who loves us, but we want to be loved because of ourselves. We want to be loved because we're good and we've done good things for God. We want to be loved because we're smart or witty. We want to be loved because we're generous or because we're moral or because we're such wonderful people. It is hard to accept this kind of love that's pure grace. That's pure grace. Grace is, uh, is defined as the, an undeserved gift towards an unworthy recipient by an unobligated giver. It's a gift that we don't deserve. It's not, we've done nothing to, to earn it. We don't, we're not obligated. And yet it's given to us by one who didn't have to. And that is a painful thing at times to receive. To admit that we have, we have a need for love. We have a need for someone to enter in and to love us in a way that we don't deserve. In a way that actually we deserve quite the opposite. And yet here's Jesus with Peter's feet in his hands, ready to serve him, ready to love him. 
And Peter bristles at it. He says, no. The author, uh, Victor Hugo, defined grace. He said, grace is a formidable assault on a person. Grace is a formidable assault. The grace attacks us. It actually requires us to, to take a blow, to go, oh man, I am in need. I'm in need of a love that I can't deserve, that I don't deserve. It's a formidable assault. To be on the receiving end of grace is highly uncomfortable for us. If you've ever participated in a foot washing, I, I, one time in my life, uh, I went to a foot washing service where you washed somebody's feet and somebody washed your feet and it kind of went around the congregation in that way. Let me tell you from experience, it is far, far more awkward to be on the receiving end of having your feet washed than it is to wash somebody else's. On a level, it's hard for us to serve, but, it, but at least we're, we're somewhat more comfortable than that, with that than to receive service. If you don't believe me, let's, uh, let's think through a couple of thought exercises. Let's say you go out uh, to dinner with a friend, and when the bill comes, the check comes for this big dinner, your friend says, no, no, let me get the check. I insist. What do you do? Well, at first, you reach for it, and you say, no, no, let, let me get it. And they go, no, 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 let me get it. And so you say, okay, well, let's at least split the check. Let's go 50-50. And they say, no, no, let, let me pick up the check. And so finally, sheepishly, you say, okay, you get, the sh- you get the check. But what do you always say? I got you next time. Right? Next time we go out, it's, it's on me. Well, what if that friend, every time you went anywhere, picked up the check? What if they never let you pay for anything, ever, Some of you think, this sounds great. That sounds like a great friend. (laughs) But what happens in a relationship over time is that it starts, you start to feel awkward, right? It's uncomfortable to be always on the receiving end, always the the recipient of their grace. Or perhaps another thought experiment. Let's say that you uh, find yourself through some some tragic accident, paralyzed unable to care for yourself, unable to to tend to even your most basic needs. And so your spouse has to feed you, has to change you, has to take you to the bathroom, has to dress you, has to put you to bed at night and get you up in the morning. Who has the harder role in here, in this relationship? I think we'd all say that at at first the caretaker, to be always giving, to to be placed in a position where you're having to so sacrificially care for your loved one. But over time, it becomes difficult to receive that kind of care and to be unable physically to pay it back, to be unable to serve, to be unable to give back. The human heart does not do well with being in a place of constant receipt, constantly receiving and never able to pay back, never able to reciprocate. And yet that is always the position that God has us in. To be in a relationship with God means that everything in the relationship is contributed by him. That we have to learn to receive pure gift, simple gift, his love to us. That all of the obedience, all of the worship, all of the prayer, everything that we give back to him pales in comparison to what he's given us. It's like all of the good things we do, it's like if you're friends with Bill Gates, 
and you took him to you know, buy a Crystal Burger once is your payback. No, you, it, even the little bit that we can give back is just a drop in the ocean of his generosity to us, his grace to us. And so in the midst of such grace, in the midst of being asked to receive this pure gift, Peter says, no. No, you will never wash me. You will never wash me. He can't bring himself to a place where he humbly receives this unmerited love from Jesus. And so he resists. And what does Jesus say? Verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Afterward you will understand. What's he talking about here? I think it's more than just after I'm done, right? It's more than just after I'm done washing your feet and I've dried you, then you'll understand. No, I think he's looking to the cross, right? Afterward, after I've done what I'm about to do in these next two or three days, afterward, after the cross, after the resurrection, after I appear before you again, then you'll understand what I'm doing here. That this foot washing is a, is a lived parable. It's a lived enactment of his love that's going to be shown most, most purely afterward, after the cross. The first verse of John 13 that we read says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour, the hour of his death, had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to completion. He loved them in fullness. And so he's showing them here in the upper room by this act, what it looks like for him to love them completely, to love them to the end. You know, Jesus' greatest act of service, his greatest act of, of love, isn't the foot washing, it's the cross. When, when, when the Apostle Paul in Philippians says that Jesus didn't count himself equal to God, but took the form of a servant, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That the greatest act of his love isn't that he would wash his disciples' feet with water, but that he would wash our entire lives with his death, with his blood, and make us pure, spotless, and clean. He says, Peter, you don't understand this now, but afterwards, afterwards you will. Think about that afterwards in Peter's life. Think about what the next several days are like for Peter. The other vow that Peter makes in the upper room, Peter is one who likes to make rash vows. He makes one, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. The other vow that he makes to Jesus and John is at the very end of this chapter, before we even get to the next chapter, he promises Jesus, I will follow you to the end. The way the synoptic gospels put it, they say, even if everyone else falls away, Jesus, I never will. Even if everybody else betrays you, Jesus, I never will. I'll follow you, Luke says, uh, to prison and to death. Peter's is one for making rash vows. But of course what we know, what Jesus predicts by the end of this chapter, he says, when I'm arrested, when I go to trial, you will deny me three times. Before morning comes, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You'll tell people, when they say, hey, weren't you with that one who's on trial? You'll say, nope, I don't know him. I've never met the guy. Three times you'll deny Jesus. Afterwards, Peter, after, after my death, 
after your denials, after my resurrection, after me meeting you, you having betrayed me so deeply, and I love you, and I restore you, and I give you grace, after that, then you'll understand what I've done for you here. After that. You see, Peter wasn't yet at a place to receive this love and tenderness from Jesus because he wasn't yet at a place where he understood his own weakness. He wasn't yet at a place where he had looked his own betrayal, his own weakness of his Savior in the eye and known the depth of what he was capable of, the depth of his need. And so here's Jesus looking Peter in the eye, his feet in his hands, saying, will you let me love you? Will you let me wash you? Will you let me serve you? Will you receive my grace. Jesus comes to each of us in the same way, saying, Do you know, have you come yet to a point in your life where you know your weakness, where you know the betrayal in your heart, where you know the sin that you're capable of, where you feel like you've blown it so bad that God would never, ever accept you back to himself? Once you've come to that place, that's your afterwards. That's your place where you're then able to receive the unmerited, undeserved service of Jesus, his love and his grace, given to you not uh, primarily as letting you, let, you letting him wash your feet, but you letting him wash your entire life of your guilt and your shame, scrubbing you clean to present you again to God. This is what it is uh, to be a Christian. This is what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus. You know, the world uh, got a beautiful picture of this kind of grace last week. Uh, the, the trial of Larry Nasser, the uh, Michigan State and American gymnastics uh, doctor who was accused and convicted uh, of abusing hundreds and hundreds of young women. The first witness uh, to break her silence on his abuse was a woman named Rachel Denhollander. She led the movement that got so many other women to come forward that led to the conviction. And uh, if you, it's, you can see it on YouTube. Her testimony uh, at his sentencing went viral. And she offered, uh, in this moment, in a long extended uh, speech, one of the most beautiful expressions of grace uh, that I think we've seen in our culture in a very long time. I'm going to read a section of it to you. She writes, observing that Nasser, uh, at the beginning of the trial, carried a Bible with him into trial. She says, in our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you've read the Bible that you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed as of God himself, loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin that he did not commit. By his grace, I choose to love in this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you read the Bible you carry, you know that forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds could erase what you have done. It comes from repentance which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. 
In the Bible you carry, it says that it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. You can't imagine the courage, the grace, the forgiveness that it would take to stare your abuser in the eye and say something like that. You know, there's a, there's a quote from Herman Ritterboss, a great name, a Dutch New Testament scholar, commenting on this passage. He says, it is not sin as such that makes a person lost. It's the repudiation of grace, the rejection of grace. It's not our sin that ultimately has the power to condemn us, though it does. It's the repudiation of grace, the resistance, the rejection of grace. It's Peter's prideful, you will never wash me, is what keeps us ultimately from receiving God's grace. It's not uh, the mountains of sin in Larry Nasser's life that will ultimately condemn him. Having been extended and offered grace, it's the refusal to receive. It's the refusal to let yourself feel and be crushed by the weight of your sin and my sin. And to let that lead us to Jesus that ultimately places our souls at peril. But if we, if we, like Peter, learn the depth of our sin, the need of God's grace, then his love can and will transform even the hardest and most wicked human heart with his love. How do you know that you've received this kind of grace? How does it work its way uh, from your head to your heart? That distance that Blaise Pascal called the longest journey that any man can travel. The distance between knowing something's true and having it affect you, having it change your soul. He says says to Peter, you know, Peter, again, uh, prone to overreaction, goes from you will never wash me to yes, wash all of me, wash my head and my feet, wash every bit of me. And Jesus says, no, once you've been washed, you're clean, right? Once, once I've washed you by my blood, you are clean once and for all, never having to worry about it again. And you need only for your feet to be washed. You need only to come to me again and again and again to let me wash you, to let me serve you, to let me apply my grace to your life. This is what uh, Martin Luther referred to as preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Right? It's not that you need again to be saved. Right? I, I've been in that place in my life where every time I sinned, every time I felt the pangs of guilt, I thought, oh man, it must not have stuck. Right? I must not re- God must not really have saved me. So you make more promises, you walk more aisles, you try again and again to get it to hope that maybe I'll say the words right this time. And Jesus says, no, 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 once you're washed, you're clean. 
What you need to do is to come to me again, to walk with me, confess your sins, repent again, receive my grace again, live by this grace. And you'll know that it's begun to worm its way into your heart. When you find yourself serving others in the way that Jesus serves you, right? That's what he says. What I've done for you, you should do also for each other. As I've served you, you should serve one another. Having been loved like this in spite of yourself, you should know that there is nothing beneath you as a follower of Jesus. There is no spot too low. There's no one beyond your serving. You should go and serve. And when you begin to find yourself taking that position, rushing out to serve, you'll know that God's grace is working and taking a prideful, arrogant person like me and like you and making you into a servant. You know, I needed this passage this week. After our uh, mission weekend last week, after hearing uh, the fruit of somebody who had tried to build a church kind of like this one, a church that's inclusive of white and black, rich and poor, a church that served in a hard neighborhood and over 40 years had seen real change, had seen kids' lives improve, had seen property values improve, had seen neighborhood togetherness improve. You look at that, and in my initial, my, my reaction, it kind of went back and forth between two bipolar reactions. One was, yes, let's go. Where do we, let's, let's, let's charge the gates of hell. We can do this. Jesus got us. Let's go. And the other was to curl up into a fetal position and not want to leave my bedroom um, for fear that, we ju- that I just don't have it, right? There's no way that we could lead that kind of ministry, that Jesus could use us in that kind of way. And so I needed this passage. I needed to be reminded that when Jesus goes to prepare his disciples for mission, for service, he doesn't start with training. He doesn't start with skills or knowledge or techniques. He doesn't even start with a pep talk. He starts by kneeling down, disrobed and vulnerable before them, taking their feet in his hands and saying, let me love you. Will you receive my grace? Will you receive my love? And it's only when we're grounded in that love, only when we're receiving, do we have anything to give, anything to give away in love. I don't know where you are this morning. I know that most of us come in on a typical Sunday pretty tired pretty worn out, uh, pretty convinced of our own weakness. Some of you have blown it this week. Uh, You've been in a fight with your spouse uh, because of something selfish and stupid that you did. You've been feeling your own shame over ways you've lost your temper, over addictions that have crept back into your life. Jesus comes to you like he did to Peter with your feet in his hands. He says, let me love you. Let me serve you. Let me restore you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do need you. We need you more than uh, we mostly like to admit. We would so love uh, to be stronger and smarter and wiser and better than we are. But the truth, Lord Jesus, is that we need you to wash us and to make us clean. We need you to serve us in your grace and your love and your mercy. And so, Lord Jesus, we bring to you our need to receive from you uh, the love that only you can give. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.